Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 17, then he, that is Jesus, left them, that is the religious leaders and the people, and went out of the city, that is Jerusalem, to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has, was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. In this chapter, chapter 21 Jesus came on Sunday, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, receiving praise. In verses 1 through 11, now, next, Jesus went into the temple and he drove out the money changers, reminding all about the need for purification and cleansing in, the, in God's temple in verses 12 through 16. Now Jesus returns to Bethany. He spends the night. He returns to the temple. But as he's going to return to the temple, he pauses along the way for a breakfast of figs. For many, this passage is shocking. It's bewildering. Why in the world would Jesus cause what seems like a defenseless, mindless, fruitless fig tree to wither and die. Jesus is going to use this tree as an illustration of the spiritual condition of Israel and the future of false and hypocritical nations, of people who are not really saved, of false religions, the fig tree was often used in the Bible to illustrate the spiritual condition of the nation Israel. So when the nation prospered, the fig trees were full. When the nation lapsed into sin, the fig tree didn't bear its fruit. Fruitfulness or fruitlessness became a picture of a nation's spiritual condition before the Lord, but it also became a picture of a person's spiritual condition before the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, the prophet Jeremiah said, when I wanted to gather them, says the Lord, there are no gra grapes on the vine. There are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And so right from the start, we learn something. That the Lord Jesus desires his followers to be fruitful and to be faithful. It begins with the need for fruitfulness. Again, look at verse 17. It says, then he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and he lodged there. 
Now, the city of Bethany is some two miles from downtown Jerusalem, if you will. So remember, he comes on Sunday. Then Monday, he cleanses the temple. He walks back to Bethany, and he rests there. You have to remember that the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Jerusalem isn't really a safe place for him. Jesus has friends in Bethany. You'll remember this is the place where Lazarus lived and his friends, Mary and Martha. Thank God for friendship. Thank God for people where you can find rest and comfort and support, particularly when things are very, very bad. In verse 18, look what it says. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Sunday. Monday. Now it's Tuesday. It's not just any Tuesday. It's the last Tuesday of his life. This is the last Tuesday he will live in his earthly body. In three days from that time, Jesus will be killed by unfruitful men. And so when it says now in the morning, the word that's used for morning isn't typical. When you think about morning, you might think about the time when you get up. You might get up at 5.30 or 6 or 6.30 or 7 or 8 or 9 or 10. The word here is the word that was used to describe the last watch of the night. It is the fourth watch of the night, which means that it's some two hours to three hours before the sun comes up. So Jesus is going to begin his day at oh dark 30 by Jewish reckoning. And in the passage, Jesus is hungry. Now I'm going to suggest to you that his hunger is both literal, expressing his very real humanity, that he is really hungry. And it's also symbolic, expressing his real desire for fruit in the life of the nation, for fruit in the life of the people of the nation. And if you ever have the chance to go to Israel, even now, it's fruitful. It's a fruitful place. In the first century, there were plenty of palms and dates and figs, and figs were popular and plentiful. They were an inexpensive source of food, and the Jewish people had fresh figs and dried figs, and they had little fig cookies, like uh, Italian people at Christmas time. They'll take figs and they'll wrap them in pastries. In Southern California, where where I grew up. Uh, I would visit my family in San Bernardino and Colton and there were orange orchards and there were grape or grapefruit orchards and and so there were orchards everywhere and and in the 19 in the early 1960s there were literally pomegranate trees that would grow by the side of the road and you could literally pick fruit or pick pomegranates right off the tree and so in verse 19, it says, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. With the presence of the fig tree came the expectation of fruit. And you have to understand that. 
If you go to Israel, even now in March, fig trees have small edible buds. In April, there comes large green leaves that accompany the fruit. So this tree with leaves has neither bud nor fruit. And again, fig trees typically require about three years from the time they're planted to mature and to become fruitful. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, there's a very familiar parable to many of you. There, Jesus tells the story of a certain man who had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. In the parable, Jesus says, quote, Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if it does not, you can cut it down. A couple of things quickly. Living things produce living things. It's going to take live fruit to produce fruit. The Lord Jesus has been ministering among the people of Israel for three years. He's opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He's healed the sick and the lame. Jesus has done the most remarkable things. And month after month and year after year, he's looking for fruit from the nation. He's looking for fruit in the people's lives. And he finds none. And at this time, a trench is going to be dug. He himself is going to be hung from a tree. And he's going to fertilize this nation in the hopes that it will come back to life. Israel, like the tree, has leaves, but no fruit. The leaves served as a cover to mask its true condition, which was barren. Now, it's interesting to me. Do you know where the first mention of a fig tree is? It's in the book of Genesis. Do you remember when Adam and Eve failed and sinned in the garden? Do you remember that they discovered that they were naked? And so the first mention of a tree in the Bible by name is the fig tree. And you'll remember that they take leaves from the fig tree and they sew them together in order to form a garment. Leaves from, from the fig tree in part become a type and a, and a picture of man-made religion. Imagine you are hurt and you are desperate and you're trying to cover up your sinful condition and your naked condition. Adam and Eve fabricate this makeshift garment to hide themselves. And so it has ever been. Human beings fabricate religion. They fabricate religion in order to address what they think is their problem. Religion serves as a substitute for many people for life. Religion can't produce life. Only a relationship with Jesus can produce life. Plenty of leaves, no fruit. 
just like human religion, making promises it can't keep, confession without conduct, outward show, inward emptiness. When we were kids growing up in Southern California, when we saw a car that looked like it should be fast, but it was, it was a streetcar, we would just say it's all show and no go. That's what religion is. It's all show and, and no go. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine for whatever reason you have to get up at 4.30 or 5. Imagine that you're making your way and you see along the way a Starbucks and the lights are on and there's activity in the parking lot. Or let's say you don't drink coffee but you want a McDonald's um, sausage biscuit with egg. And you see the activity in the parking lot. The lights are on and people are there. And it's 5 or 5.30 and now it becomes 6. And you see there are people and the lights are on. And so you go into this place. What is your expectation? Can you imagine you go in and they go, we don't have any coffee. Can you imagine you go into McDonald's? We have no burgers, fries, Egg McMuffin, whatever. We don't have any of that. What are you going to do? Wait a minute. I've been conditioned since an early age to have this expectation. At Starbucks, you have coffee. At McDonald's, you have food. At church, what do you have? Don't you have any expectation whatsoever? Isn't there an expectation of life? Isn't there an expectation of love? Isn't there an expectation of, of fruit? In the chapter, remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling prophecy, but the religious leaders ignore the sign. They ignore the prophecies, revealing their own spiritual blindness in verses 1 through 11. Jesus goes into the temple. He overturns the tables. He drives out the money changers, revealing the nation's utter spiritual corruption. And now Jesus curses the fig tree, revealing Israel's outward fruitlessness. Does Jesus have the right to expect fruitfulness from the nation? Did he have an expectation that they should be able to see who he is? Did they have an expectation that, he should, that they should represent God according to the revelation that was given in the Bible? Was there the expectation of fruitfulness? And that's the point. Does Jesus also have the right to expect fruitfulness from me and, and from you? from his followers, from the people who say that they love him, who claim that they are able to see him, who claim that they're able to serve him and represent him. Paul tells Timothy right before he dies in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, as he's writing his final letter, he said that in the last days men would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And then he says there will be people who will have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
and from such turn away. What does that mean? They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power. They'll have a religious form. They'll have a form on the outside that looks religious. They can go to a, a religious church. They can read a religious book. They can participate in religious activities. They do these religious things and these religious ceremonies under these religious circumstances. But they don't have the power of a changed life. Because you can see you can have a form of godliness, but what has changed on the inside? They have external religious trappings, leaves. But they deny the power that God has the ability to change them from the inside out, to forgive them, to shape them, to mold them, to transform them. So what kind of a gospel, what kind of a gospel leaves its host spiritually blind, inwardly corrupt, and fruitless? And so there's this expectation of being able to see of being able to serve, of being able to participate, that your life is fruitful for Jesus. You'll, you'll, no fruit means no union, and no union means no life. In John 15, 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The context in John chapter 15, by this, he's talking about prayer. What kind of prayer? Remember, Jesus has said, I'm the true vine and you're the branches. He said, anyone who's connected to me is going to be alive. You'll be alive and fruitful. The context is that trees produce fruit. At first, that fruit will be pruned. It'll be cut away, which will result in more fruit through God's word, by God's Holy Spirit. There's going to be the production of much fruit. Bearing fruit means that we have the character of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. In other words, the presence of Christ in your heart, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to produce the peaceable fruit of love, joy, and peace. We produce the fruit of righteousness or uprightness. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 11, it says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. It says we produce the fruit of holiness, which is separation from sin and separation to God, being made free from sin, and we become servants unto God. You have fruit unto holiness. Your life is marked. By separation from sin, not participation in sin. Your life is marked by fellowship with God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 13, Paul writes about integrity and consistency. Walk worthy of the Lord being fruitful in every good work. There's the fruit of generosity. 
ministering to others. I desire fruit in Romans, in, in Philippians 4.17. I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Fruit becomes the very object of God's salvation. Romans 7.4, bring forth fruit unto God. Over and over, again and again, the expectation is fruitfulness. Again, in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. If that's true, and I think that it is, then it's the presence of love that becomes the source of a changed life. I'm not talking about love in the abstract. I'm not talking about love disconnected from God. The Bible says God is love. I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling that just wells up inside of you. I'm talking about the presence of a real Savior in your life producing fruit. In John 14, 23, it says, If a man loves me, he will keep my words. The reason why, if you love him, that means you're connected to him. You have friendship and fellowship with him. And so you keep what he says. Christian, are you a tree with leaves, but no fruit? John Bunyan wrote, quote, It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. What Bunyan was basically talking about is sometimes there are seasons of darkness and winter and cold. It's that snapping cold that produces fruit for so many trees. I don't know if you've ever had Colorado peaches. Do you know why they're so delicious? Because there's multiple seasons. Have you ever had Washington apples? It's because there's multiple seasons. And sometimes there's going to be a season of sorrow, difficulty, setback. But it's supposed to pr produce fruit. And there are make-believers. There are counterfeit Christians who will one day hear Jesus say, Depart from me, you cursed. In Matthew 25, 41. The reason, they have nothing but leaves and no fruit. There are several curses in the Bible. The serpent is cursed in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. God curses the ground. God curses nature. God curses Cain and Canaan and the enemies of Israel and disobedient Israel and unbelievers and false preachers and surprisingly there is a curse upon those who choose to depart from grace and remain under the law in Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 Paul writes for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them unquote there's a curse upon every single person where there's an expectation of doing what God wants and then you don't do it. And then there's sin. And then sin produces death. 
so Jesus is going to come to relieve you of the curse by becoming a curse. But look at this curse of fruitlessness at the end of verse 19 where Jesus says, and he said unto it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. We're back to our original question. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Jesus isn't killing this tree simply because he's tired or angry or hungry. Why does Jesus curse this tree? In part to tell a story. A story about a nation's unbelief. And how that unbelief would bring judgment. That's part of the story of the New Testament, where there's a constant invitation. Would you please believe? Will you believe that there's a God who loves you and cares about you? Will you believe that your sin is a problem and it's brought you under a curse? And the reality is that you're going to need a Savior. He does this in part to talk about the nation's unbelief. He does this in part to reveal his supernatural power over physical reality. But he also does this in part, I think, to show his anger and disappointment with religion that offers a promise of nourishment but then consistently fails to deliver. And maybe you grew up in that kind of religious world where it was the promise if you'll go to church, if you'll read your Bible, if you'll do this or that. And don't get me wrong, I want you to go to church. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to be baptized. I want you to participate in the ministry. But all of those things that I want you to do become simple religious things if you've never been changed from the inside out. If your heart has never been changed. That's pretense of nourishment. Jesus would never kill a tree just to make a point, would he? Well, let me ask you a question. Would Jesus go into the temple and cleanse it in order to make a point? What's the answer? Yes. Will Jesus send a herd of swine, send evil spirits into the herd of swine, killing that swine in order to make a point? Was Jesus angry with the disciples when they refused to bring the children to him? You see, you have to understand something. The curse of Jesus didn't make the tree barren. It just simply confirmed what the tree always was. Just like Israel. Just like the person who says, I don't think I need God. I don't think I need Jesus. I don't think I need his love. I don't think I need his salvation. Just like the fig tree, fruitful in appearance, barren in substance, it appeared good at a distance. 
Just like religion. And for some people, that's exactly what they want. They want a religious experience. They want you to keep their distance. Look, I'm willing to participate with you at a religious level, but you need to keep your distance because if you get too close, if you inspect my heart, if you examine my life, if you evaluate my actions and my speech, you might discover something about me. And this is why we promote friendship and fellowship. This is why we promote proximity and intimacy. It isn't to simply reveal the make-believer. It's to provide an opportunity for you to be fruitful. And that your fruit is real and it remains. In the Life Application Bible commentary, it makes this quote, which I think is very interesting. It says, quote, the temple looked impressive at first glance, but its sacrifices and other activities were hollow because they were not done to worship God sincerely. We already Quoted Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, and then again in Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, Hosea 9, 10, and Micah 7, 1, over and over and over again, the repeated Old Testament warning was make sure that you don't have religion, absent relationship sacrifices, absence, something that's different inside of your heart. Spurgeon challenged his congregation. He said, quote, I would put it to you, my dear hearer, have you been fruitful? Have you been fruitful with your wealth? Have you been fruitful with your talent? Have you been fruitful with your time? What are you doing for Jesus now? And I think that becomes absolutely an important thing that we can ask ourselves. Are you fruitful now? Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's the presence of Christ in your heart, working itself out in reality. In verse 20, look what it says. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. That means they're astonished or blown away, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? In the original language, we could read this passage, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree immediately wither away? And I think that the answer is evident. The answer to the disciples' question is going to be answered in the form of faithful prayer and power. In other words, Jesus has power over the physical universe. Mark's gospel tells the story in two stages. Jesus curses the tree on Monday, and the next morning, Tuesday, Jesus and his disciples pass the same fig tree in the morning light and can see that the tree is not mostly dead, but utterly dead. You laugh because some of you know about the veiled reference to the princess bride. You'll remember where the, the prince is, is dead and, and he goes, he's dead. 
dead. And he goes, no, he's not dead. He's only mostly dead. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to determine what's dead from what's mostly dead. The parable of judgment on a spiritually dead people revealed a severe judgment. And that's why in the early church, the early church fathers had no problems whatsoever applying this parable to the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place later in 70 AD. Jesus has the power over the physical universe. Unfruitful human beings have a certain measure of power. Are there unfruitful people who can do weirdness, who can do harm, who can do evil? Well, yes. But Jesus has the power to determine who is fruitful and who is not. Jesus is the only one who will lay down his life and have the power to raise it from the dead. And so Jesus' impartation of fruit comes from his own fruitfulness because he plants his body in the dirt and raises it from the dead, bringing life so that you can have life, so that you can have forgiveness, so that you can have hope, so that you can be fruitful. Does Jesus have the power to prevent his own death? I think that the answer is yes. Jesus didn't die because he's weak. He didn't die because he wasn't really the Messiah. He didn't die simply as the helpless victim of the plots and the intrigues of wicked, fruitless people. He's going to dig a trench around the tree. He's going to fertilize it with his own blood. The nation Israel judged Jesus. The religious leaders said, you are unfruitful. You are unworthy of life. And they killed him. However, the day is coming when Jesus will judge the unfruitful. With his own lips. But in this present day. In this present moment. Jesus isn't longing to pronounce a judgment upon you. But rather he's longing to pronounce life. And love and hope and healing in your heart. And so there's the prayer of faithfulness in this present day. Jesus wants to save human beings. Look what it says in the prayer of faithfulness in verse 21. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. What is the source of his great power? Where does it come from? You see, part of the point of this passage is Jesus willing To share this power with you. Jesus explains in the first person. Assuredly I say to you. 
If you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it will be done. Just a geographical point, just for a moment. Imagine you're with me and we're on the top of Mount Olives. On the top, on the top of Mount Olives on a clear, clear, sparkling clear day. You can peer the 25 miles as it goes down the slope. And there you can see like a little blue pearl lying on, on the plains. The mountains of Moab and the Dead Sea. Did you know that? He says, if you say to this mountain, which mountain? Is he talking about the mountains around Jerusalem? I doubt it. I suspect the mountain that he's talking about is the very Mount of Olives that he is speaking from, having just left Bethany after just cursing the tree. Is Jesus interested in literally lifting this mountain from its roots and then casting it into the Dead Sea? I don't think that that's what's happening. I think what is happening is Jesus is reminding them of three things. Faith, don't doubt, and God's authority. What does he mean by faith? In Mark's gospel, in the parallel passage in chapter 11, verse 22 and 23, Jesus says, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that these things he says, that it will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. He's not talking about faith and faith. He's not talking about what some cruel, misguided, perverted people say on TV that faith is a force and your, your words are the container of the force and that this force is some sort of power that you have within you. Let me be very, very clear. You have no power whatsoever apart from God and apart from Christ. Is that pretty clear? By no power, I don't mean no power to do wicked, harm, or evil. That's not what I'm talking about. By that, by power, I mean the power to change yourself internally or the power to meet the obstacles that are going to be necessary in your fruitful life as a Christian. And so, I think that the mountain that he's making reference to in part, is what Carolyn intimated at worship. Remember, she prayed a prayer and she talked about burdens in your heart. The mountain can be a kind of burden that begins to fill your heart with fear and difficulty as you begin to struggle with things like sickness or things like disease or things like doubt or unbelief. The kind of prayer that moves mountains is the kind of prayer that includes a personal fruitfulness with Jesus, faithfulness to the gospel. Jesus is teaching his disciples with this parable about answers to prayer. Again, is this a literal mountain? I suspect not. Is this a figurative or a metaphorical mountain? 
I suspect so. Is Jesus anticipating something in their future? Opposition to the gospel. Opposition to Jesus. They're getting ready to face a horrible circumstance. Jesus is going to die and they're going to be left utterly devastated by it. Do you think that Jesus is offering this parable as some sort of magic formula to get whatever you want? Remember what we've already learned. Why would Jesus condemn selfishness in the temple and among the religious leaders and then applaud it among his own followers? How is that even possible? How is it that Jesus could condemn corruption and fruitlessness and covetousness and selfishness and then just say, you know what, but it's okay if you do it. That can't be the right answer. And so Jesus says, we pray personally. We pray believing we don't doubt. What might cause doubt? Perhaps unconfessed sin, Psalm 66, 18. Insincerity, Matthew 6, 5. Carnal motives, James 4. He says, you ask not because you have not, but when you do ask, you do it selfishly to satisfy yourself or burn it on your own wishes or unbelief, James chapter 1, verse 5. Or Satan's attacks, Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. A troubled marriage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, it will hinder your ability to pray and receive answers to prayer. Or pride, Luke 18. In verse 22, it says, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The promise of power comes through prayer and faith. Jesus has already said, I'll share this power with you. How? Through prayer and faith. And that's the point. We ask. You'll remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he emphasized a personal relationship with God, our Father. He emphasized faith. You are in heaven. Worship hallowed be your name, expectation, your kingdom come, submission, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, petition, give us this day our daily bread, confession, forgive us our debts, compassion, forgive other people's debts, dependence, don't lead us into temptation, deliver us from the evil, acknowledgement, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. And Jesus says, I'll share that power. It's available. It's supernatural. It's conditional. Do we pray to promote blindness? Continue in corruption? Fulfill selfishness? It can't mean that. Someone said, Prayer is the vehicle. Faith is the energy. It takes both to reach the desired destination. 
In this instance, what's the destination? Fruitfulness. It makes perfect sense to me that the spiritually blind, the inwardly corrupt, and those with little or no spiritual fruit can find this passage to mean I can have whatever I want. The passage doesn't guarantee you whatever you want. We don't use Jesus' name like some sort of magic incantation. Jesus doesn't grant requests to satisfy corruption, selfishness, covetousness, wickedness. God isn't interested in hurting people just because you prayed in Jesus' name. Faithful prayer requires faith and a real relationship with Jesus. And now we've come full circle. A dead mother can never give birth to a live child. Life requires life. Life makes fruitfulness possible. Fruitfulness makes faithfulness possible. You know, there was one thing that I talked about, about curses that I failed to include. There's one other thing in the Bible that's cursed. Jesus became a curse, the Bible says, to release you from your curse. How? He's going to die on the cross. He's going to come back to life so that he can impart life so that you can be fruitful, so that you can be faithful. And now we understand, is it okay for Jesus to expect me and you to be fruitful and faithful? The answer is yes. Will he share his power? Yes. And now we understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we do pray that we wouldn't be spiritually blind, that we wouldn't be inwardly corrupt, that we would produce fruit that remains fruit that abides. Lord, I pray for that person who is facing a mountain of debt, a mountain of difficulty, a mountain of doubt or unbelief. Lord, there's so many things that we struggle with and that we deal with. But there is no heavier burden. There is no greater destroyer of humanity and sin and unbelief. Lord, it is perhaps the biggest mountain of all. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lift that mountain.
mountain away from the surface of some human soul and that they would come to see that there's a Jesus who loves them, a Jesus who becomes a curse for them, a Jesus who will come back to life so that they can experience life and then produce fruit and then much fruit and then the most fruit. In Jesus' name.